Welcome to the Vineyard Justice Network podcast. The Vineyard Justice Network exists to empower vineyard pastors and leaders to pursue and enact the justice of God's kingdom. VJN focuses on the interconnectivity of freeing slaves, ending poverty, and tending creation. This podcast was recorded in October of 2014 at the VJN Conference at Anaheim Vineyard. Speaker Bethany Anderson, Immigration Initiative Director of Solidarity in Fullerton, California, spoke on how the church can be involved in immigration reform. locally here in Orange County called Solidarity, um, and I'll share a little bit more about that. But before we kind of get into um, what we'll, the, the kind of content of what we're going to be talking about today, um, which is immigration, and really looking at the issue of immigration from a biblical perspective, um, I'd love to hear, especially since we're such a small group, I'd love for this to be like more interactive and not me like talking at you. Um, I just got back from a three-month sabbatical, so this is actually my first time speaking in a long time. And I'm like, I think I think I remember everything. But so if you can help me out here, it's gonna be a lot better. But um, but I would love to hear um, uh, a hero of mine, Alexia Salvatierra, what she's sharing tomorrow. I think in the big stage, um, she always asks, "What's your burden?" Um, so what is your burden today? What is your burden for coming to this workshop as opposed to the other ones um, available? Is it you know the answer could look something like, "I feel." very uncomfortable with the issue of immigration and I would like to just kind of check it out or, um, or yeah, that, that burdens me, just the discomfort with it or I have a friend that is undocumented and I'd like to hear, you know, how can I address that or this is an issue that we're going through in our church. So anything like that. My burden, um, to, to give an example, my burden is that um, I have many burdens when it comes to this issue but the one I'll share is that um, my husband and I, after six months of being married, decided to foster um, an 18-year-old um, young man from Honduras who was trafficked here and undocumented um, and walked with him for the last four and a half years um, and um, I fought the struggle um, with my, you know, now he's in my family. I fought the struggle of, of, of an undocumented immigrant and, and fought for him to um, have protection and, and uh, to be safe and so that's my burden for him and he represents thousands and thousands of other children which I'll talk about. Um, later, the unaccompanied minors issue, which if you've been following the news, is probably something you're aware of. Um, so that's my burden. His name's Marlon. He's my burden. That's why I'm here. So if we can start here, we can just go around the circle. Sure. Um, Jamie Wilson, our co-pastor with Michelle, has been in church in San Diego. Um, well, it's one of the biggest social issues in our city, mm. uh, being a border city. And I think I'd love to have a little sense of a roadmap of how to move from, like, Occasional advocacy to mm -hmm. uh, more intentional mm -hmm. engagement. Mm -hmm. you know, Great, thank you. Thanks for being here. I don't know the answer to that question. Can you skip me and come back to me? Sure, no problem. <laughs> My name is Natalie Rodriguez, uh -huh. and I co lead um, the outreach ministry at Dwell Church Plant in Mesa, San Diego. And um, is an issue that I deal with a lot um, in my work. I am the associate medical director of a free clinic that sees 90% undocumented people in it. So it's something I feel really comfortable talking about um, in my work setting. Um, but I feel like our community as well is looking to get more involved in the issue because of the unaccompanied minors. And I would love to be able to help guide that conversation from a biblical perspective. Awesome. Thank you. And let me just give a little side note too. If, if your burden is like, hey, I don't know how I feel about this, that's okay. It's like safe space, no judgment. Um, I've been on all parts of the side on, on this issue, so so no judgment on that. Uh, I'm Amanda from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. So I actually feel a little bit, I'm not really sure how what the burden is, uh, the reason I came is because um, where I live, 
is very inner, it's the inner city of this of Winnipeg, and it's very Aboriginal or hmm. First Nations. I'm not sure uh, what term you guys use here, but um, but what I, I live right beside a place that's called Turtle Island, uh, also known as the the development, and it's it used to be probably 90% Aboriginal, and is now like growing more and more um, people who newly immigrated to Canada. Hmm. And so, I mean, it's just an interesting shift and change. Where I live specifically is still very Aboriginal, but I like I can see this happening. I'm just curious. Hmm. But I know that the issue mm -hmm. here is quite a bit different than mm -hmm. than probably what I'm seeing. I'm also very interested. In I hear a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you. I'm Hope. I'm from Minneapolis, and um, Minneapolis has very high rates of immigration. I live in one of diverse neighborhoods in the nation, and um, it's always immigration and illegal immigration has always been really interesting to me, but um, kind of inaccessible. It just seems like a huge issue, and I guess I'm kind of just in the first stages of wanting to know more and be better informed, and yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Les. Of justice from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I grew up there, and when I grew up, I mean, the community was basically 50% white, 50% African American. Mm -hmm. And in the past 10, 20 years, it's now 15% Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, part of it is, you know, I live in a very conservative state. They passed an English only mm -hmm. law, uh, and I took a lot of flack, but I actually preached. Mm. against discrimination based on language. Mm. But again, I'm very oriented to biblical and so on to find, okay, have the Bible, don't care how conservative or Republican mm. or Democratic you are, here's what the Bible has to say about mm. it. So that's my orientation. Hey, Diane, I'm from Annie Vineyard, and um, I don't know, this issue is so polarizing and so big, and you know, on the one hand, you think, okay, what if terrorists decide to come across and, you know, spread Ebola or something? Our borders seem so forth. On the other hand, I have friends who are from South Africa that used to be a part of this church and moved to Colorado, and they they couldn't get their citizenship no matter what they did. They, you know, one of them, I think, one of their kids finally did through a lottery system or something like that. It just mm -hmm. doesn't seem like there's any justice in the mm -hmm. situation as it is now. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Do you want to share or? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think similar to what Jamie said, there's, you know, being in San Diego, mm -hmm. huge immigrant population, you know, we work on both sides of the border, um, and parts of those people are how to care for them effectively. But then I think also um, connect a lot with what Bubba said. I feel like um, I'm kind of the opposite of the person who doesn't really know what they think. Mm -hmm. um, I think I feel really passionately that the, that the, the Bible's clear on mm -hmm. caring for the stranger and caring for you know the, the displaced, and I have a concern that the church hasn't really embraced that call. So mm -hmm. I think like my burden is for the church mm -hmm. to embrace mm -hmm. the call to care for the stranger. Yeah, love it. Great. Um, cool. Well, I'm just going to share a little bit of my story and how I um, came to be. Um, deeply involved in, um, in immigration in our country and um, give some biblical basis for, for just some, it seems like, you know, we're kind of all on the same page, so maybe just some resources for you, um, some, some scripture that is really helpful in navigating the conversation, um, and then share a little bit about what is our system, what's, what do um, those experts um, in the evangelical community on immigration say are the broken parts of our system, What's the current reality um, of our country and of our system? It's, it was a really hot topic a couple months ago um, in the news and now other things like ISIS and Ebola <laughs> kind of push it to the side. Um, but it still is very relevant and, and very much a current um, issue and need. So we'll talk a little bit about current realities and then just some quick like how to respond. Um, what can we do? What, what are some takeaways from today that we can all do uh, to kind of help move the ball forward um, in our churches and in our country? Um, so a little bit about me, uh, like I said, my name is Bethany. I grew up in Long Beach, California, so actually, yes, one of the most diverse cities in the world as well, um, where every language was spoken, um, but also very segregated. So there was, um, where I grew up was predominantly white, and I went to a predominantly white church, uh, middle class, conservative, 
um, kind of your typical typical church, um, mega church, and uh, it was a great church. I had a great pastors, a Christian parents, um, but something that I didn't realize until I kind of left that context is that we really only engaged with people um, that looked like us. All my parents' friends looked like me. Um, all of my church looked like me. All the staff and leadership at my, at my church looked like me. Um, and we only really engaged with people of color or that were different than us uh, when we were on mission. And so it definitely set this thing inside of my soul where I'm up here and I know everything because I'm a white American Christian and everyone else is down here. And so we, it's only really appropriate for us to engage in relationship with those down here when we're on mission. Um, but, but I never really saw it exemplified like an equal partnership or an equal friendship. Um, and, you know, I grew up, I would say that my, my parents love the Lord. Uh, there's definitely a little bit of um, moderate, moderate racism in my family, um, stereotypical jokes, um, discomfort with people that were different. Um, and so, so that was a part of me as well and a part of my story. Um, when I went away to college, went away, I came here to Fullerton, Hope International University. Um, it was enough that I didn't have to see my parents every day, but if I needed to, I could run home in 20 minutes. Um, and um, I got involved with the ministry called Solidarity, which is what I've, I'm a part of now, and um, began to volunteer in a low-income community right down the street from our campus. Um, and just kind of went in with all of that baggage that, oh, okay, these people, man. Whew, they need me. Uh, they're really poor. Um, they're, the parents don't help the kids with their homework, and um, man, they like let the kids run wild in the, the neighborhood. And these people, these people need me. Um, so I'm going to go, and I'm going to I'm going to save as many people as I can. Um, and obviously, like from the smirks, I can tell that you all are like she's crazy, and that's that quickly, you know, went out the window um, when I built like first real relationship um, with with someone in the neighborhood um, that just flipped my life upside down. And his name's Sergio. He was a teenager in our teen center that my husband and I helped to start we, um, before we were married, but we helped to start this teen center in this community. And he was one of the first kids that, that came and was, in, was participating. And one of the first days that, that he was there, he was just really off and like really kind of depressed. And, um, and he shared with us about just some, some family stuff, about an uncle passing away and just um, not feeling, um, not feeling safe, not feeling secure, um, and and just kind of feeling really odd and, and awkward, and like he didn't fit in. And, and we, we prayed for him, and um, and you know I'm still kind of like yeah, like well I prayed for him, like he's so blessed because of my prayers, and um, I'm gonna save this kid, you know, kind of kind of mentality. Um, and and my husband and I walked with him, you know, very closely through the high school years, helped him. Um, get through some really tough, uh, tough assignments and, and classes. Um, he came to the country when he was eight or nine, so his English was was good. He could communicate, but writing essays and all of that was just a real challenge for him. And so we walked through a lot of that with him. And fast forward to you know the end of his junior year, beginning of his senior year, and we're like, all right, Sergio, like man, we've we worked really hard through high school. Like we got to start thinking about college. Like where are you going? And that's when he shared with us. Um, I'm not going to college. I don't have papers. Um, like I can't. I can't go to college. That's not even. I got to start working as soon as I graduate high school. Um, and I was like, "What? You don't have papers? What does that mean?" That was really the first time that I heard like that. Um, you know, that saying, "I don't have papers." Um, and so, you know, I'm like, "Okay, well, what's wrong with this guy's parents? Like, we just got to go to the post office or wherever you go and get the papers and fill them out and send them. Like, what's the, what's the big deal? You know?" Um, and so I. You know, consulted with some of our some of our people on staff and got connected with an attorney and kind of looked at his case and the attorney explained to me with a lot of grace, yeah, it's not that simple. Um, his parents aren't being negligent or irresponsible. There's like literally no paperwork for him to fill out. And I was like, what the heck? This doesn't make any sense. This kid has been here for 10 years almost, and he's like, you know, never gotten in trouble, no crime, no criminal um, background, has worked his butt off in high school. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me that he. Um, that he's undocumented or illegal. And so that really began like my journey of, okay, well, if that's him, then what other students in my neighborhood, what other parents you know, are undocumented? And, um, and really kind of started this journey of trying to understand, well, what does that mean to be undocumented? How does that even happen? And what is our system that there's no paperwork for this kid to file? And um, 
And thankfully, I think the Holy Spirit in my life just, because um, I'm kind of like a, I'm a justice person. I'm, I'm like a doer. I'm, I'm like a fighter, you know. So, um, so it's like, well, who do, what, what door do I need to knock down? Like, what do we need to do to change this, you know? The Holy Spirit in my life was like, hey, why don't, why don't you look at my scripture? Like, let's start there. Let's build the base. Like, yeah, it's great to be passionate about issues, but, but, but what's the base? Um, and so for me, my journey um, in really understanding the issue um, after kind of having the personal experience was really looking at the Bible. Well, what does the Bible say? So, you know, we're all believers here, um, part of churches and uh, believe in the Bible, I'm assuming. So the, there are so many scriptures that we've heard, right? So many verses that refer to this. Um, the, the Hebrew word jer, ger, depending on how you want to pronounce it, which is the word closest to immigrant, it appears um, 92 times in the Old Testament. Um, that's a significant amount of times in the Old Testament. Um, fundamentally, God's people are called to love and seek justice for immigrants um, because that was God's example for us. Um, in Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 19, it says, The Lord your God is the God of all gods and Lord of all lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who doesn't play favorites and doesn't take bribes. He enacts justice for orphans and widows, and he loves immigrants, giving them food and clothing. That means you must also love immigrants. Um, and there are so many, right? So we're not going to like look at all of them, but, um, but that is, that's a great one. Uh, many of the heroes and heroines of the biblical narrative were immigrants themselves. Um, we have Abraham, who was called by God, um, and he also fled famine. We have Rebecca, which would be like a family-based uh, immigrants. Joseph, he was a victim of human trafficking, if you, if you want to look at it that way. Um, Ruth, also family-based immigrant, fled famine. We have David, who's an asylum seeker, um, running away from, um, from being, um, wanting to be killed. Um, we have Jesus, who was a refugee as a baby, right, but also a celestial immigrant, if you will. He, he migrated from the heaven uh, down the heavens uh, to earth. Um, we have Paul, an employment-based immigrant who moved around a lot based on, on his call, um, in the, his call to the gospel, to share the gospel. Uh, so, so this theme of immigration is very common uh, throughout, throughout the Bible, and we see, we see it um, throughout the New Testament um, and the Old Testament. Um, in, the, in the Old Testament, um, we see in, all throughout, especially like the, um, when God's giving his law uh, to the Israelites, he repeatedly insists that the native-born and the immigrant be treated equally. Uh, so the same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you, Exodus 12.49. Uh, just like the citizens, immigrants were entitled under the law to fair treatment as laborers. That's, that references in Deuteronomy 24.14. A Sabbath rest from work, that's in Exodus 20.10. Prompt payment for labor, Deuteronomy 24.15. Equal treatment when accused of a crime, Leviticus 20, verse 2, 24, verse 16. Um, in 24 verses 21 to 23. So obviously this is something that the Lord takes very seriously since it's repeated over and over um, in scripture. Let's scroll down to like the New Testament. And there's tons more here. I was going to like do the whole slideshow thing, but I was like, it's a small group. Oh, Let's do that. Would you give those your notes? Yeah, I could send this to you. This is actually, I work with, an, um, we partner with an organization called World Relief. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they, this is like the PowerPoint that we have via them. So I could totally, we could send this out. It's like public. It might even be on their website, but I can definitely uh, send it out. Um, so in the, in the New Testament, maybe one of the most important um, themes is that we're called to hospitality. And a lot of times, like churches, I don't, my church has like a hospitality team to make people feel welcome. Um, or like... If you go over to a friend's house for dinner, they'll say, thank you so much for your, you know, you'll say, thank you so much for your hospitality. And that's great. That's, like, wonderful to do that, right, invite friends over for dinner. But that's not really what hospitality is. Um, hospitality literally means the love of strangers. Um, so it doesn't mean love your friend. It means love stranger. Um, and so in Matthew 25, like, one of the key verses, um, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Um, do not forget whoop, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Hebrews 13.2 um, Scripture challenges us to think that immigrants rather than, that immigrants rather than are um, aliens to be feared, 
might actually be a blessing to us and might actually be something that the Lord um, wants to use in our own lives. Um, we, are, we are also called to submit to the law, and this was a scripture that, um, that I wrestled with and, and um, many Christians wrestle with, especially when it comes to the issue of immigration. Um, so, yeah, and documented brothers and sisters, they wrestle with, um, with this too. I have many friends that are Christians and that are undocumented, and, and they look at that scripture in Romans that says, you know, submit uh, to the law. And, um, man, what do you do with that? <laughs> because they're illegal. They're breaking the law by being present here in our country. Um, but yet there are scripture also that says um, to not feed your family is worse than an unbeliever. And so many of my friends, at least, um, I can share from my personal um, relationships, the reason that they are here in this country is because they wanted to feed their families. Um, they wanted to provide uh, a better life, a safety for their families. Uh, so, so there are definitely, you know, scripture there to, to wrestle with. Um, submit to the law um, is something that um, we are called to do as Christians, but there's also within that same, the, the same scripture, it talks about how um, we actually, if, if a law does not match God's law, and then we're, we are to submit to God's law first. Um, and if God's law all laid out through the Old Testament is to treat immigrants um, like we would want to be treated or like we would treat a native born, uh, then that law has to trump whatever, um, whatever country or, or U.S. law um, we have. And so we don't have in California and other parts of the country like um, the South Alabama, um, there are laws that prohibit um, interacting and providing services and caring and some would say loving um, immigrants. Um, that was the whole, that started really with the Arizona law a few years ago, and, and then other um, states tried to do copycat laws of that. Um, California, we don't have that law, so that's not something that we necessarily need to worry about here, but it's something to be aware of, that there are people that are advocating for those kind of laws that would prohibit us from providing services, uh, giving rides to, or um, allowing them to come into our food banks, or whatever it may be, and so um, those laws obviously are very directly um, against God's law, right? Now our current immigration system is that directly against God's law. Um, that's where that's where we have to wrestle. That's where it gets really complicated because it's clear what our call is as Christians, um, and it's clear that you know we submit to God's law before we submit to um, a worldly or an earthly law. Um, but but does it contradict? But so the question: Does our current law contradict God's law? Um, our current law is really extremely, extremely complicated. Um, I am certified through the government in this thing called BIA, a Board of Immigration Appeals. So as a nonprofit worker, I can practice immigration law. And when I did my class, the books that we got, which was the immigration law, were like two books that totaled about like this thick. Um, and I have them sitting on my desk, and it's a constant reminder of this is this is our immigration law. So, um, and there's. There's many um, statements within the law that are like, okay, well, this is the kind of relief that is available to this person if this is the case. But if this is the case and that is not available, and so then maybe this is available, but if this is the case and that's not available, I mean, that is like, that is all over the place. This is extremely complicated. And what has happened is um, the, the base of our immigration law is actually really, really old. Um, it's from like the 60s. Um, it's the backbone of our immigration law. And um, there have been some changes throughout the decades, but, um, but it's really outdated. So what we have now is, um, and, and it wasn't enforced, it hasn't been fully enforced, which is why we've had like a huge influx in like the 80s and the 90s of farm workers and undocumented workers coming over because we had two signs at the border, one that said help wanted and one that said no trespassing. People would come here and they'd be able to find jobs because the reality is, is that there are jobs that most American citizens are not willing to work, um, and those are the jobs that undocumented immigrants take. Um, we provide, um, our country provides 5,000 low-skill worker visas a year, but our economy absorbs 500,000 low-skill workers a year. So the amount of visas that we have available based on the needs of our economy and what we're actually filling um, with low-skill workers, obviously there is like a huge discrepancy, right? So if we have that many jobs available, um, but we only have 5,000 
um, 5,000 visas, so 5,000 opportunities for people to, to take those jobs legally, but yet our economy relies on 500,000 jobs a year, um, you know, there's going to be, we're going to have a problem. Um, and it's really interesting the way that kind of our system works. Um, uh, one myth is that undocumented immigrants don't pay taxes. Um, and that's actually a huge myth because what our government does, the Social Security um, has done, is they give ITIN numbers. Uh, you might be familiar with that if you're like working in, in the industry, right? So ITIN numbers are a tax identification number and it allows anybody, no matter if you have a Social Security number or not, to pay taxes. It's nine digits, just like a Social Security number, so you put that in instead of a um, Social Security number when you're filing your taxes. Um, and so actually most undocumented immigrants do pay taxes. The Social Security that has been collected is like in the billions of, of these undocumented workers with ITIN numbers um, or with Social Security numbers that don't match a real person, so a fake Social Security number. Um, so the government actually is making a lot of money off of, off of unaccompanied or undocumented workers. Um, but yet there is a cost, right? There's a cost to undocumented immigrants and medical um, in the medical field and education are the two highest costs. Uh, so that's you know something that, that people bring up a lot, that immigrants cost us a lot of money. Um, and so that's why we should close down the borders or we should stop immigration altogether um, or we should enforce the current laws that we have. The problem with that is that basically now we can't go back and we haven't enforced laws for 20, 30 years and now all of a sudden we're going to start enforcing laws. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't work because now we have 12 million people here that are undocumented, um, and what do we do with the 12 million? So we can, we can, stop, we can start enforcing our laws and, and stop allowing people to come. We can secure our borders, but the reality is what do we do with 12 million people? Um, and many of these 12 million people, probably the majority, lived in what is, live in what is called a mixed-status family. So they have people in their family that are here legally, so they were born here, or for whatever reason were able to legalize their status. Um, and so, do we round them all up and deport them? Well, that would separate families, and that's not biblical. <laughs> we know that family is meant to be together, right? Um, so, or do we offer a path to legalization, or, or some people advocate for making life so miserable for them that they'll just leave on their own, which that, to me, doesn't really reflect God's heart either, right? So we just kind of like cut them off from any kind of resource or, or anything, and then, and then they'll just choose to leave. Those are really kind of like our three options, right? So, <coughs> like mass deportation, um, deportation by choice because we've made life so miserable, or we have to provide a path to legalization. Um, so where I see some contradictions with our law, with our law and, and God's law is what do we do with the 12 million? That is, that is the main question. And, and also I think a deeper thing, which there's not a ton of time to get into it, is is um, the reality is that people are coming for legitimate reasons. Life in these countries where people are coming from are extremely challenging, um, extremely dangerous, um, and there, there is no upward mobility in a lot of these countries, and so there's no opportunity to get out of poverty. Um, I think a lot of times um, in the U.S. we have this idea of like pulling yourself up from your bootstraps and anybody can, can do, you know, if they work hard enough or they think positive enough, they can overcome anything, right? even extreme poverty. Well, that works for us and our system for most people, um, but that does not work in countries where there is severe oppression or where people um, are being kidnapped or, or killed on a, on a daily basis. Um, countries like Central America specifically or countries in Africa or, or even um, some Asian countries where it's extremely poor um, and the opportunities are extremely limited. So as Christians, we need to be thinking about how do we love our neighbors well and our neighbors, meaning our neighbors in Mexico or in um, El Salvador or Guatemala or Honduras um, or anywhere in the country, really, <laughs> we could justify as, as being our neighbors. Um, and, and closing our borders and not allowing anybody to come, is that really the best way to love them? I think that we need to really rethink the way that we do global missions and really work on community development in these places and, and address some of the systemic oppression that causes people to want to come here in the first place. That's really the only backbone solution to, to an immigration, you know, immigration problem here in our country. Um, but that's like a generation out, right? So that's gonna take a long time. 
um, we still have to address the current the current issue um, of, of people being here undocumented. So I think, um, so I'll, I'll share a little bit about um, kind of what our proposed solution is. Um, as, as Solidarity, we're part of something called the Evangelical Immigration Table, um, which Alexia helped to start, um, and, and again, you'll hear from her tomorrow. She's amazing. Um, so she, she helped to get kind of major leaders from across the country um, together at a table, um, from the Southern Baptist to Jim Wallace at Sojourners, who theologically could not be on opposite, more opposite sides of, of the spectrum, but they, they came together on this issue, and it's really actually a beautiful picture of of church unity um, when you look at the evangelical immigration table. Um, and we've come up with, um, with a, a statement of principles, so things that we would like to see shape um, immigration reform, um, which is how we would say that. We, we really feel like um, the way to fulfill kind of God's call to the church is to really advocate for a change of laws that better love his people, citizen, non-citizen, um, that better protect his people. So these are some of our, our statement of principles. Um, respects the God-given dignity of every person, protects the unity of the immediate family, um, respects the rule of law, guarantees secure national borders, ensures fairness to taxpayers, and establishes the path toward legal status and our citizenship for those who qualify and who wish uh, to become permanent residents. So these are the statement of principles that have uh, kind of been moved across the country, and um, many prominent faith leaders have uh, signed on to that, including uh, Lance and Cheryl Pitluck, who pastor of this church, right? Um, but people from Lisa Anderson, who is the head of the National Association of Evangelicals, Noel Castellano, who's the head of Christian Community Development Association, um, you know John Perkins, Dr. John Perkins, uh, he's a signatory as well, Bill Hybels from Willow Creek, um, Max Lucata, the author, Russell Moore, who's the Southern Baptist Convention, um, from the Southern Baptist Co Convention. Um, really the list is like now I think it's like in the thousands of people that have signed on. It's actually really beautiful. People from all different denominations, backgrounds. Um, and so those are, those are the things that we're advocating for at, at the table. And so those are really simple principles that if you're interested in, in advocacy specifically, like that's, that's what we would um, use when we're speaking with legislators or when we're speaking to our congregations about, um, about what we're advocating for. Because a lot of people want to know, well, what are you, you want open borders or you want... Um, just to hand out green cards for free, you know? Um, and that's really not what we're at. That's not going to work. That's not going to solve anything. We do need to secure our borders um, because, they're, because of the risk that you talked about and because it's dangerous. People are dying every day in the desert trying to get here. And um, we do need secure borders for sure. And we do need, um, but, we, but we have to do something with the people that are here and we have to provide um, an earned path uh, to legalization, I believe. Um, not a free, not amnesty. Not amnesty means free grace, right, or or, or a free pass. Um, thankfully, we we believe in that in the Christian faith because we we're all beneficiaries of amnesty. Um, but that's not really going to solve anything. We you know Ronald Reagan did that in the 80s, and here we are, you know, 20, 30 years later with the same in the same situation. So I don't we're not advocating for amnesty, um, but we're advocating for for an earned pathway um, to legalization. So that's kind of. The really quick, um, I guess, snapshot of here's what the Bible says, which you know we all know, we're all on board with. Is a little bit about some of the brokenness in our system and, and ways that we believe um, at the Evangelical Immigration Table and at Solidarity that that those can be addressed. Um, it's a little bit about the current reality. Um, can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. um, and it's probably because I'm not from here that I don't know the answer. But how do you become undocumented? Um, if you enter, so there's a number of ways. One, if you enter illegally, so if you cross the border without um, proper inspection, is what it's called. So going through a checkpoint, having the, the visas necessary. Um, it's really extremely difficult to get a visa into this country. Yeah. Especially if you're from certain specific countries, and even if you're from friendly countries, you know, it can be a, it can be a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. To navigate yeah. the bureaucracy of that, right? Um, actually, a lot of our a lot of immigrants um, that are undocumented are visa overstayers. So they came with a visa, um, but they overstayed their visa or they didn't um, renew in time. Um, I have, my brother-in-law actually, he was adopted from Brazil and he is undocumented. He's a visa overstayer. Um, he came on a student visa. He's a street kid in Brazil, didn't have family, met my husband's family. They brought him over on a, on a student visa 
and when everything was fine, like no problems, um, and then all of a sudden he's flying from LA to, uh, to Texas where they're from, and um, the guy checking him in is like, your papers aren't right. And he was Brazilian, the guy checking him in, so he's explaining this in Portuguese. It was totally like God's protection over, over my brother-in-law for sure. And he's like, I'm gonna let you go, but you don't fly internationally ever again because your status, you're out of status. Um, and ter turns out that the college did not file the paperwork um, affirming his student status at their school, and so he fell out of status without any notification, wow. no knowledge of it. So he's just going, thinking he's done everything right, and he's totally, totally undocumented. He's still undocumented uh, to this day, and he's been in this country for 16 or 17 years. Has no family in Brazil, um, so. Visa overstayers sneak in. Um, a ton of trafficking victims in our country are undocumented because they're smuggled in. Um, and then they use, smugglers, traffickers use immigration status as a manipulation tool. They'll say, you know, well, go ahead, go tell the authorities. They're just going to deport you, and we'll just go back to where you are, and we'll just kill you and your whole family. Uh, that was my foster son's um, story. That's what his traffickers told him. Um, and of course, he's going to believe it. He's 15 years old, and he doesn't know anything about our, our legal system, right? He doesn't know that he has protections <laughs> under the law. Um, as a human being, he has no idea. So, um, yeah, those are probably like coming. Born here, maybe? No, you, if you're born here, you're, you're, a, mm -hmm, you're a citizen. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, that's, that's something you need to too. Yeah, so, and there's so many, 12 million, because that's, it's been happening so long. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. But people fly here from like China, have a baby here, and then their child is a citizen yeah. in the United States because they were born here and they fly to There's businesses, there's businesses that do that. Smuggle people in that are pregnant so they can have their child here on U.S. soil, get the U.S. birth certificate. Mm -hmm. um, but actually the majority of, there's, that's, that's really popular from Asian countries, but that there's like business around that. Um, but actually the majority of undocumented, undocumented immigrants from like Latin America, they've been here at least two years before they have a child. So the, the idea that that's happening like from Mexico and from Central America, that they're just coming over here to have their baby, is actually like 10% um, is that the case. So the majority of people actually are here established and then they have children that are anchor babies or, or American citizens. I'm just really curious why the border crossings that, you know, we used to slow down on the way up from San Diego and everything. And now you there's nobody there, or they just, nobody stops ever. Or us going into Mexico? No, or coming, coming here, coming up from you know, if you've only been to San Diego, you didn't go to Mexico, but you always had to stop at the border oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. patrol, mm -hmm. and then they're going up 15 or going up five. Now yeah. it doesn't seem like they're even. Yeah, they do yeah. sometimes. Um, I, I drive down to San Diego for work quite a bit, and yeah. so maybe once a month I get oh, stopped. Okay, but it, it is routine. It is routine, and the reason that that checkpoint is there is that border security only has jurisdiction within 100 miles of the border. So that's like 100 miles from the border. Oh, and so that's where their office is set up. They can't, they don't have any jurisdiction past that. Okay. But I'm sure it's got to do with funding and all oh, that kind of stuff. Um, and traffic and all of that. I don't know. But yeah, we do have, right down the five, like San Clemente, we have a, a border check 100 miles from the border. Because I'm like, when you come back from Mexico, no, you wait for a long time. <laughs> At that, border, at that border crossing, you wait a long time there. Hours and hours and hours. Um, but does that answer your question? Yeah, okay. So are there any questions? Just feel free to interject. I'm talking really fast because I'm trying to get a lot of information in a short amount of time. Go ahead. Yeah, I have a question about the, oh, I forget what you call it, the, the sort of non-social security number. ITIN. ITIN number. Can you explain a little bit more about that? I'm unfamiliar with that. Um, I'm not quite sure on the process to get it, but it's through the social security office. And it's just a nine-digit number. It's a taxpayer identification number. Anyone can apply. Anyone can apply. Yeah. The problem so is why would you apply? Because if you don't have a social security number, but you'd like to file your taxes, um, you get the ITIN number so that you can file your taxes. So you can get a refund maybe for because because if you're working and you're getting a paycheck, so you're getting so what a lot of undocumented immigrants do is that they use fake social security numbers. Actually, a small percentage are stolen, which that's another myth that all these, they're stealing people's identities. They're fake, so they belong to people that are dead or to their children or something, right? They're not associated with another taxpayer. Um, and so people use that when they apply for a job. And so they get a paycheck, has their last four of their social, um, taxes are being taken out. Um, and then in order to get, like, say if they have kids, you know, and they want the refund that you get for kids or whatever, you have to file your taxes. 
Plus, a lot of immigrants, at least in my, they want to file their taxes because they want to do everything that they possibly can to be right with the law. Um, and so they file their taxes. And, and you can't use the fake Social Security number on your taxes because Social Security office will figure that out pretty quickly, whereas your employer is not necessarily going to check that. Um, so that instead of using the fake Social Security number, you use an ITIN number, which is issued by the government and it belongs to the individual that's paying the taxes. It's not anybody can get it. So you put the ITIN number in and then you file your taxes. The ITIN number is nine digits just like. So is the ITIN number actually designed so that illegal immigrants can pay yeah. taxes? Yeah. So it's another one of the just bizarre incongruencies of our system. Yes, exactly. You can't legally be here, but you can legally get but if you're gonna be file here, your taxes. Let's pay taxes so that we can co collect <laughs> taxes from you. Yeah. Is it only for legal immigrants or for any immigrants until they get a visa? It's for anybody that doesn't have a social security number. Right. So a student okay. could be well, here legally, so they could but be doesn't here have legally. a legally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, if they were able to work here legally, then they would get a social security number. Oh. But a student comes on a student visa. They're not supposed to work, but a lot of them do because they have to. Um, and so then they would use an ITIN number. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, so I mentioned this like cost, right? Everyone talks about cost. So, so actually it's a benefit um, at the federal government level. We collect way more than we pay for, for undocumented immigrants to be here at the federal level. Um, at the state and the local level, that is where there is a little bit, it's kind of a wash basically. Economists say it's like a wash. So we do pay. We pay for education, we pay for medical care. For undocumented immigrants, they pay local taxes. They they also boost our economy by being um, consumers, as well. And so it's it's a wash. But across the board, it's a wash. In some states, maybe it's you know more of a cost than it is a benefit. Um, in other states, maybe it's more of a benefit than a cost. And um, that's why you see states popping popping up in the last five years or so, trying to pass these laws because or local governments trying to pass immigration laws. Um, Meaning, like they, the only thing they really have power is how their police treat immigrants. So, we have here in California, we have something called a rule of law city, or a sanctuary city. So, LA is a sanctuary city. If you get stopped by the police in LA, they're not going unless it's a serious crime. They're not going to run you against an immigration database and send you to deportation. Now, your Belinda, which is right down the street, that is a rule of law city. So, if you get stopped by the police in a rule of law city, then they will, no matter what, jaywalking, minor traffic violation, they're gonna run you in the immigration database, and if you show up undocumented, they're gonna send you to immigration right away. Um, and that's because we have local government trying to do a federal government's job because the federal government is not doing anything um, about this. So, so that's been where all of those kind of laws and stuff come up. One thing, I know one of the biggest issues that I hear is people are about from committed, mm -hmm. particularly more urban areas mm -hmm. by uh, legal immigrants. Does your organization, do y'all address that at all? I mean, yeah. mm -hmm. newspaper headline grabbing uh, issue. And yes, I'm looking up, I have a statistic on that actually. Um, let me look that up and, and I'll get that to you because I have some information about that. Um, I do know that. Off the top of my head, I don't know the exact numbers, but American citizens are much more likely to commit crime than undocumented immigrants are. Um, but I'm not sure exactly what the number is on that. But I do know that as a fact. Um, but I'll look that up and I'll get that to you. Um, so a little bit about the current reality, what's happened in the last couple of years. So a quick timeline. 2012, President Obama did an executive action called DACA for Action for Childhood Arrivals. Is anybody familiar with that? No? This is a really awesome program that the president created that allows um, kids like Sergio, the kid that I was sharing about, uh, to have protection under the law for two years at a time, be able to get a social security number and work, um, and then um, and uh, and not be protection from deportation. Um, so that happened in 2012. In June 2013, the Senate bill, uh, the Senate created a bill and passed it, um, an immigration comprehensive immigration reform bill. Um, and it wasn't perfect, but it was a huge step in the right direction. It went to the House. Um, the House did not do anything with it. Um, oh, um, 
In January 2014, the Republicans actually released a statement of principles on immigration reform, and they were fabulous. They were great. They were right in line with the, with the evangelical immigration table. Um, there was a lot of promises from Speaker Boehner that this is the year we're going to get this done. Um, we're going to do it different than the Senate bill. We're going to write little bills that address all of the issues, a border security bill, um, a, uh, uh, the Children's Act to protect children that were brought over here, um, pass the legalization, all these different bills we're going to pass them one at a time. That did not happen at all. <laughs> so that was supposed to happen um, in June or July of this year. Um, but then in June 2014, the president gave an ultimatum to the Republicans, basically, to the House, pass something or I'm going to do more executive action, which he had a lot of pressure from the immigrant community to do that. Um, but it might not have, might have been a problem <laughs> uh, because then the political game kind of happened. Um, and then also in June was the influx of unaccompanied minors, and that just kind of sent people just spinning out of control because it was like, see, this is what happens. If we do anything, then everyone's going to come here. Um, and so there was a lot of really horrible rhetoric about those children and, um, and a lot of just a lot of crazy talk. Uh, so right now where it looks, it's like nothing is likely to happen in the next year and a half. Um, which means every single day that we don't have immigration reform, families are being separated. Um, people continue to live in the shadows at risk of, of oppression in the workplace or being trafficked. Um, we continue to have borders that are not as secure as they should be or could be. Um, and so because of politics, um, here we are, and we are looking at maybe 2016 of getting um, a reform. So. That's kind of the current reality. The thing that is really important, actually, my heart, which I talked too much, so I didn't really get into this, is that the opportunity really for us as churches to respond to all of this madness is that immigration really, to me, is like a huge discipleship opportunity for us in our churches. Um, when you suffer with someone, when you encourage and engage in relationship with someone that is different than you and someone specifically that is suffering, um, we actually get opened up to like all these promises of, of scripture. Um, promises of, of growing in our character and, and perseverance and experiencing God's hope. And that's my story, man. I feel like um, from who I was uh, 12 years ago when I got involved in, in my neighborhood and who I am now, man, I thank God I don't think I'm the Savior anymore. Thank God my hope is not in myself and my own abilities. But because I really um, was kind of thrown into suffering with people and hearing their stories and feeling that hopelessness with them because there was nothing I could do. Um, really in that moment, right? Um, but yet, then I, I'm entering into this deep part of God's heart and I'm experiencing God's promises. Well, like God is taking care of these people, even though like the government is not taking care of them, no one's taking care of them, but, but God is. And seeing miracle after miracle after miracle in, in my neighborhood, um, really like a, like a wokenness um, ability to hope um, in my spirit. And, and I don't think I would have experienced that without suffering with my neighbors. And so um, for me, it was like one of the biggest discipleship things in my life. And so that's really what, like how you said, you know, your burden, man, that's like your burden is the church to really fulfill the call of Jesus. And that's like, that's my heart. Um, that's, that's like the depth of my heart right there. Like, man, I see what the Lord has taught me through, through me engaging in this issue and I just want my brothers and sisters to experience that God, that God that I experience, that part of his heart, um, that revolutionary Jesus that cares about the oppressed and the poor and, and the orphan and the immigrant. Um, and so there are, are, that's really kind of what, um, what the call is to us. It's like, how do we do that? Well, we have to engage the issue, especially if you live in places like San Diego or, or Minneapolis. And um, where are you from? Oh, you're from here. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So for all of us, you know, this, this is a relevant um, issue. And this is not, like, unique to the U.S. Um, really seeing immigration as, like, a discipleship opportunity. Um, a family that works in Brazil. And it's the same thing is happening there with Bolivian immigrants. Um, and the, the Brazilian church is trying to figure out what do we do. There's, like, a total, like, system of, of racism and, and, um, and just hierarchy. And, and Bolivian immigrants are the poorest and the, the most oppressed there in Brazil. And so it's an issue that actually, like all countries, the church all over the world faces. Like, it's a, it's a biblical theme. It's going to be a part of our life um, until Christ comes back. So how can we really teach people to treat um, and see people as God sees them and God, and God um, would have us treat them? Um, 
So, so how to respond individually if you're a church leader or pastor. Um, there's some things on here that are just really simple, and, and I'll go through them as soon as they go all around. And then at the bottom is how to respond as a church or how to engage um, with your church. So um, the first is there's a really amazing study that World Relief put out. It's like an eight-week um, eight study, and it's called Welcoming the Stranger. And um, a great thing you can do is to go through that with your leadership, um, with your staff, with a small group at your church, but, or to go through it personally. Um, and, and it just really breaks down all of this information in it, in it um, in like week by week, and it's just a fabulous uh, biblically-based study. Uh, so that's a really great way to respond. Take the I Was a Stranger Challenge. And I have these bookmarks here, and it's, um, it's 40 days of scripture and prayer. And it's just going through scripture that, that talks about, um, refers to immigrants and God's heart for the immigrant. So you can take one of these, or you can take like a stack if you want to go through it with other people or with your church. And these are like, um, you can get as many of these as you want. So if you're like, I want a thousand for my whole church, like I could, I could get that for you. Um, so that's like an, a really amazing resource and a really um, like way to just ground yourself in, um, in scripture, in, in this kind of, in this issue, in this struggle. We also have this amazing film called The Stranger, and, um, and I have a couple copies of it, uh, but what we've done over the summer across the nation is, is people host screenings and then Q&A times, um, and it's, it's a documentary following different um, people within our, our country that are immigrants, and it's so powerful. It's, it's a really beautifully done, um, fabulous um, documentary. So on here, I put the website to that. You can stream it from the website for free, or I have a copy, a couple hard copies like DVDs. Um, this is a really great one, this, and maybe some of you have done this before, but have lunch with a pastor of an immigrant congregation um, and ask questions like, what is it like to pastor your church? What are the, what are the stories, what are the issues that really are affecting your congregation? Um, I think it's easy, even looking around this, this room, like we're all um, like white Americans or Canadians with, I'm assuming Rodriguez, you're Hispanic. Speak Spanish. Um, so a lot of times, like with justice issues, honestly, it's like a bunch of white people talking about justice issues. We really don't know what, for the most part, we don't really know what it's like to suffer injustice. Um, and so, but we think we do because there's a lot in our society and in our churches that, that tell us that, you know, we, we know a lot, we know everything, um, almost like, at least in my context, that's how I grew up, right? Um, but really hearing the stories of, of people that are living this, that are experiencing this every day, is so important and so valuable. Um, I'm, I'm connected with an, a wonderful network of, of um, immigrant pastors across the country. So if you like are interested in that, um, you can contact me. And I have my card with my email on there. Um, for advocacy stuff right now, advocacy stuff has like really been put on hold because there's no movement politically. Um, but that doesn't mean that our representatives don't need to hear from us. Um, we call this legislative ministry. That really, we have a call as Christians to be a prophetic voice and to speak into the process, the political process in our country. And so our representatives need to hear us. And they need to hear, like, they need to know that, that they're being prayed for and that, um, and that man, Christians care about, about these issues. And so um, there's, on that little card that has the principle, there's actually a phone number you can call, and it, it directs you connectly. You put in your zip code, and it will direct, direct you with your representative. I call mine every week. He's not super <laughs> helpful, um, but, <laughs> but I will tell you his office knows who I am, and they may be slightly irritated with me from time to time, but... Um, but I am calling every week, hey, I just want to let my representative know that I'm praying for him. And that I really hope that the Lord was in his heart as to care about uh, this, these people within his district that I care so deeply about. Um, simple as that. Or write a letter or send an email. Um, it's really easy. But it is really important. Um, I've done a lot of work on the Hill uh, around this with, with legislators, senators, and, and, um, and House members. And every staff member, every representative that I meet with says, like, we need to hear from our districts. We need to hear that this is an issue that people care about. Because if they don't hear, then they're just going to vote based off of who writes their check. And, and that's not, and they might do that anyways, right, <laughs> even if we call them a thousand times. But, um, but it is important, and that is the power that we have as American citizens uh, to do that. How to respond as a church, host a screening of the stranger. Um, like I said, um, you know, public screening with, with members of your church. Host a come to the table event. That's something that's happened across the country 
where you actually share a meal with your church and an immigrant church, um, and you just share stories, and, and we have like a whole kind of layout to how to do that. Um, preach about God's heart for the immigrant on the Sunday service. Like I said, there are scripture galore to do this. Or you invite someone to come. I have um, Alexia, who's a really great one. Um, there's there's a, a whole plethora of speakers that are willing to come um, anywhere in the country and, and speak about this. Um, which is sometimes a little bit easier than you speaking about it yourself if you're a pastor, because then it's like, if it goes crazy, you can just be like, <laughs> oh, that guy's never coming back. Um, um, and then invite your congregation to volunteer. Um, really, like, like any issue of justice, you are only going to care about it so much until it's personal, until it's your friends or your family. Um, and so the relational aspect is like so important. Here locally, we have actually a shelter for unaccompanied minors. Um, and so we have opportunities to visit those kids on a regular basis. If that's something that would be of interest to you, it's a fabulous thing that we have here. Because um, we send groups there every, almost every day of the week to play games and do meals and stuff for the kids. It's in full listen. Yeah. Um, so that's a really easy relational. And I mean, that will wreck you. It will absolutely wreck you if you go there and you visit those kids and you're like, holy cow, like, these are children, you know? Um, in a beautiful way, because you enter into this deep part of God's heart. But then it's also just like, whew, it's emotional. Um, I put on here communal immigrant services, which is my... Um, my legal practice, but actually the BIA practices are happening all over the country. So if that's something you live in a population or in an area where there's a lot of immigrants, um, BIA is done through the government, but there's Christian organizations that will do the training and help you get it all set up. And then you can practice immigration law out of your church or out of your nonprofit. And what a missional opportunity, like to have people in your office sharing their stories and you just offering the hope of Jesus. It's amazing. It's the best evangelical tool that I've ever experienced on um, being BIA certified. Uh, so that's a really great way um, to do it. And it's, it's not like a crazy commitment to do it. So if you want more information about that, you can email me. Um, and then local, getting involved in your local community development organizations if you're not already. Um, but we're part of CCDA, which is the national kind of movement that Dr. John Perkins from Alabama started. And um, so a ton of organizations just working in the trenches in the neighborhoods with people that you can volunteer with and, and build relationships that way. So those are kind of my my challenges to how to respond. It seems like maybe some of you are already doing some of those things, but my card is over here. So if there's any um, you know questions or if you want to be connected to someone locally in your area that's doing this, we do actually have mobilizers all across the country working on, on, um, on immigration from a biblical perspective with churches. Uh, that we can, I can connect you with in your area. So I know there's some in Alabama, and there might be some in your area as well. Um, but yeah, are there any questions? We're like at 318, but we started late, so <laughs> so we're good. <laughs> but any questions or comments or um, anything that, yeah? Yes. 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 He has. Saying, you know, so much. Yeah, I know. Cheryl is, um, Cheryl's like friends with him, right? So her, yeah. Cheryl and I talk about. She, yes. He, he, he's there's a lot that I agree with, and he's I'm not so our thankful. Anymore, I'm an orange, but, oh, really? But and I, he's really big on women's uh, rights, too, yeah. and, and protecting women. On this issue, he just hasn't done anything. So. Okay. Well, I, I, mean, I think he has a heart. He, would hear he you. does. He's at him. So. Oh, I've been at him for <laughs> Cheryl, Cheryl, Cheryl is like my... She's my go-to gal with him because she's got a good relationship with him. Yeah. They're not evil. Our Congress, our Congress people are not evil. They have hearts. Some of them might be, yes. But they have hearts. They're human beings too, right? So, can I just like seal this with a prayer really fast? Is that okay? Yeah. Father, I just thank you for um, just brothers and sisters who are eager to um, enter into deeper parts of your heart and, and to really. Um, struggle with um, just understanding your justice and what it means for us in everyday life um, to live out your justice and, and um, to really seek your heart for those uh, that we're surrounded by and, and those um, that maybe suffer from oppression or, or don't have all the privileges and opportunities that we have, Lord. And so I thank you for that. I praise you for what's happening in these, uh, these couple of days here, just a celebration of, of your love, your justice, and your mercy. And your grace for us. And so we just um, continue to ask um, you to give us hope, to put our hope in you and in, in no man, but just in you. 
um, for issues like immigration or trafficking or um, poverty or kids in foster care, whatever it may be, Lord, that, that we just remember that our hope is in you and that you are father to all. And so we just thank you and we just pray that um, we can go from here just maybe a little bit more equipped and, and inspired to um, just engage this issue of immigration on a deeper level, Lord, because we know it's something that you care so much about. So we thank you, uh, we praise you, and, and we just, we love you. Um, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God has come.